as we come to your word. Father, we remember that your word will never return void and that you have promised that. And so, Lord, help us to come to your word this morning with reverence and with awe, knowing that your word is all-sufficient, inspired, inerrant in all that it teaches, and that when our hearts disagree with it, it's not because there's anything wrong with your word, it's our hearts. So we pray, Lord, that if necessary, bring conviction. If necessary, bring assurance. If necessary, bring correction. Lord, you know. You know it all. And so we ask, Lord, this morning, knowing what your word says, knowing what you promise, we ask, Lord, that your word would not return void, but that your will be done, and that Christ would be glorified during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to John. We're going to be in John chapter 4 today. The famous author and poet, Ralph Waldo Emerson, once said this. He said, quote, That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming, end quote. Now, the idea that he was proposing there, that he was, uh, that he was trying to communicate there, was that our identity is shaped by our deity. Our identity is shaped by our deity. That is, who uh, we are as individuals is closely related to what we love the most, to what we worship. And as we consider these words by Ralph Waldo Emerson, let us see for just a moment how they would apply to two people who took two very different paths in life. The first person is Charles Darwin. In his autobiography, he wrote this. He said, quote, My chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. End quote. And he would go on to say that science, quote, is the only thing which makes life endurable to me, end quote. Now, you might say, okay, well, this is a man who loved science, uh, and that's true, but the truth is he also hated it. He also saw that it was a great evil. Uh, he wrote of how it consumed him, how it consumed him even to the point that he found no joy in anything else in life. The poetry that he had once found so much peace and, and comfort in reading uh, no longer brought him that. Instead, he said it was, quote, uh, dull, end quote. Uh, the, the art and music which had captivated and brought joy to so many, uh, so many other people did absolutely nothing for him. And so by the time he died, he would describe himself as, quote, a withered leaf for every subject except science, end quote. What we are worshiping, we are becoming, what would a person have to spend his life thinking about and filling his mind with, filling his heart with, to become so cold that he would describe his life as a withered leaf? The answer is a godless ideology from which one cannot derive a true sense of meaning and purpose in life. 
But consider Emerson's words as applied to another man, a man who is generally considered to be America's greatest philosopher, uh, who at the age of 19 wrote a set of 70 resolutions, which include the following. He, he started with this. He said, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And so he, he wrote 70 resolutions, which included these. He said, uh, for one of them, resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in my whole in the whole of my duration resolved to study the scriptures so steadily constantly and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same resolved to frequently review my dedication to God, to keep my love and heart solely His, and to keep the love burning bright, to repent of a lukewarm heart. End quote. Now later in life, this man, the great Jonathan Edwards, would reflect back on his life and write of his devotion to Christ throughout his life, of how it, quote, brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field or garden, end quote. Two men, both intelligent, both, I would say, actually brilliant, uh, in fact, on a purely intellectual level, one whose path would lead him to see his life at the end of his life as a withered leaf, and the other whose path would lead him to see his life as a flourishing garden. What was the difference? The object of their worship. Worshiping rightly is of utmost importance, and that should go, of course, without saying, for those of us who are Christians, shouldn't it? We're implored throughout Scripture to worship God, and yet there is often this enormous misunderstanding about what worship is. How do we do it? Where are we to do it? Are, are, are these answers, are the answers to these questions the same for everybody, or are we just kind of free to come up with whatever we think is best for ourselves? Our passage today is going to help us to answer these types of questions. Today we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the gospel according to John. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 22. But throughout this conversation, we've seen, um, we've seen Jesus having with this adulterous Samaritan woman, uh, we've seen several uh, very important, very remarkable uh, points in this conversation. The first thing we saw was that Jesus was the one who took the initiative with her. Jesus is the one that took the initiative with her. He had to go to Samaria, and even at the well, as she comes up, he's the one who takes the initiative. Now, we know that by the middle of this chapter, she's going to be saved, but it wasn't because she was seeking God. Rather, it was because God sought her. Secondly, we saw not only Christ's willingness but beyond even his willingness, we saw his eagerness to give grace to reluctant and resistant sinners. Almost immediately, Jesus tells this woman of how if she knew the gift of God, if she knew who he was, she would ask for living water and he would gladly give it to her. He had an eagerness to give grace to her. Third, Christ has communicated 
to her the supremacy of what he has to offer in comparison to what the world, to everything that the world has to offer. What he offers her will satisfy a person for eternity while worldly satisfactions, I mean, you and I know it. They're here one minute and they are gone the next. Fourth, we saw in last week's lesson that a person's conscience must experience the weight of their guilt before God so that they will understand that they have a need that they have previously not recognized. They'll see their need to believe in Christ, knowing that by doing so, their guilt will be taken away, cleansed by the blood of Christ. So today we're looking at verses 19 to 22, and the point of this passage is that God must be worshipped as God has instructed his people to worship him. The worship of natural man, drawn from the well of ideologies and philosophies and thinkings of natural, unregenerate man, that is entirely, that worship is entirely done in vain. So having gently and graciously confronted this adulterous Samaritan woman about her sin, letting her know that he was actually fully aware of the sin that she was guilty of, the the fact that she was living with a man to whom she was not married, we've seen her tone change. We saw that the first part of the conversation, she was kind of dismissive, uh, if not sarcastic, um, with him. But that changed when she was confronted with her sin. We saw her become much more somber at that point. Now, generally speaking, when people are confronted with their sin, with the subject of sin, they'll do one of two things. Uh, They'll either start making excuses or they'll change the subject. Watch how the woman responds to Jesus, confirming, uh, to, to him confirming to her that he knows all about her sin. Watch what she does. Look at verse 19 with me. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's just stop there and consider what she's doing here. Um, let's, let's give her credit. She's not making excuses. That's a good thing. She's not making excuses for her sin. Rather, she seems to be trying to change the subject. Instead of acknowledging her sin directly, she tries to step out of the spotlight. She's basically saying, let's put the spotlight on you for a minute. Changing the subject. She's coming around. She she is coming around. Her conscience is kicking in. But the thing is, she's not exactly sure who Jesus is yet. She's received a partial understanding of who he is. She's partially correct in saying that he's a prophet. He, he was a prophet, but the truth is, he's more than a prophet. He's a prophet, priest, and king. But there is a bit of irony here. If you remember a few lessons ago, we discussed some of the differences between the Samaritans and the Jews, and we saw that the Samaritans, uh, they were the descendants of Jews who had intermarried with the people of the land during the Babylonian invasion, which saw most of the Jews of the land sent out as captives to the surrounding nations. Uh, Those who remained were absorbed into the pagan culture of the Babylonians by marriage, And this was an act which was strictly forbidden by Jewish law, but not only were the Samaritans different from the Jews in terms of uh, their ethnicity in first century Israel, 
But they also differed from the Jews in the fact that they had only accepted the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. They had rejected the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, which means they had rejected all of Israel's prophets. And here's this adulterous Samaritan woman saying to Jesus, whom she knows is a Jewish rabbi, I see that you're a prophet. Interesting. This appears to be a moment when maybe she's just slightly starting to come around. But then she kind of quickly reverts to the religion that the Samaritans had practiced for centuries. In her mind, okay, Jesus is a prophet, but watch what she says next, verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Very interesting sidestep. Um, in, a, in a chapter where we've seen Jesus modeling what evangelism should look like, this is actually really helpful to see her do this because an essential aspect of evangelism is to inform or to remind the person that you are evangelizing that whatever they think they've done to please God, whatever they think they've done to worship God, apart from faith in Christ hasn't pleased him at all. Instead, it's stirred up his wrath, and God has rejected their worship. Somebody who tries to come to God apart from faith in Jesus Christ cannot please him. They cannot worship him. The point that the Samaritan woman is bringing up here had to do with a tension that had existed between the Jews and the Samaritans for centuries, for generations, that being where people should worship. Her ancestors insisted that it was fine to worship right where they are, which was at Mount Gerizim, even though the Jews had insisted that God must be worshipped in Jerusalem. That's the point that she's bringing up. The, the question that she's kind of getting at here is, is there really a right answer? And the answer is, yes, there is. Yes, there is. And to get to that, we have to know some more of the, the details of the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. So again, uh, the separation of the Jews and the Samaritans, it's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. Uh, the Jews were exiled from the land. A few remained. Um, the ones that remained, maybe they, they hid in caves. We don't know exactly how they, they uh, stayed there without being captive, uh, taken captive. Maybe they hid in caves. Maybe they bribed their captors. Whatever the case, a few did stay in the land, and they were immediately absorbed into the culture of the pagan Babylonians. So when the exiles who were, who were taken away uh, returned after 70 years from Babylon, they started to rebuild Jerusalem. That's what we see in the books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah. Uh, they, but they returned to rebuild Jerusalem, not simply for the sake of just having a city in which to live, but primarily because Jerusalem was the place where God himself had instructed them to build the temple. And so around 450 B.C., the Samaritans offered, you know, they, they came in and they, they saw their, their uh, old Jewish brothers and sisters uh, trying to rebuild the temple, and they asked if they could help. And the Jews said, no, you can't help. Why? Because the Samaritans had forfeited their entire heritage, had forfeited their identity as Jews. These were people who had intermarried with the pagans who had taken over the land. 
they hadn't remained faithful to God. And they, they still weren't when they're offering to help. They still weren't faithful to God. They still practiced pagan religiosity. They were pagans. They lived like pagans. They thought like pagans. But more significantly, their worship was pagan worship. So when the Jews refused to allow the Samaritans to help them rebuild the temple, what did the Samaritans do? They thought, well, we have to have a place to worship, so we're going to go build our own. We're going to do this our way. And so they went and built a temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. This is something that was never instructed by God. God had given very specific instructions about the temple including not only all the details within the temple and how it was to be built, but where it was to be built. And that's why so many Jews would come and gather in Jerusalem for the week of the Passover, which we saw back in John chapter 2. See, the temple was what we would call a foreshadowing. It foreshadowed Christ, the Messiah himself. Every detail, in one way or another, pointed to Jesus how many messiahs would there be? One. Only one. And that's why there was only one temple in Jerusalem. The temple that was built on Mount Gerizim by the Samaritans is the temple to which the Samaritan woman is referring here when she talked about her father's worshiping on this mountain. It was a false religion. It was pagan Religion. It was man made religion. It had maybe some elements in common with Judaism, but that's because they had syncretized their religion. I mean, what do you get when you take just the first five books of the Bible and stick it in a blender with all these other types of worship from all the pagan nations around? What do you get when you pour it out? You don't get Judaism, you get demonic religion. And so her response to Jesus confronting her about her sin is first to, to, to try to put the spotlight on him and then to try to tell Jesus that, well, she's already got a religion. She doesn't need what Jesus might have to offer. He's a prophet, and you know that's great and everything as far as she's concerned, but she doesn't really need what he has to say, does she? After all, haven't her people been Worshiping the same God that the Jews worship for centuries? I mean, it's different from the Jews, but is one really different or better than the other? That's the essence of what she's getting at here. So let's dig a little further back into the significance of this Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. After Israel had finally crossed over into the promised land, there was a ceremony that God instituted, that he instructed to take place. He instructed half of the tribes to gather on Mount Gerizim and the other half to gather on Mount Ebal. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 12 and 13, God says, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. In verse 13, he says, For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So from Mount Gerizim, the blessings of God for perfect obedience were read. It said, it says uh, in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 6, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all 
of his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if, contingent, it's contingent, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out." That's the reward for perfect obedience. How would the people receive all these blessings? By doing all that the Lord their God had commanded them on that day. There was no gray area. Either a person was completely obedient to God, or they were not. And for anyone who fell short of perfect obedience, the blessings were not theirs. They were disqualified for any of the blessings. Instead, they would be under the curse. So God instructed that the six tribes of Israel on uh, Mount Ebal read what would happen if the people were disobedient. We read this, but it shall come about. If you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statues with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 18, cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come out or when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. So this ceremony concluded with a crucially important lesson on salvation. After the blessings and the curses were read in their respective locations, God instructed that an altar be erected on one of, the, uh, on one of these two mounts. This altar would be the one place, the one place where people could come and worship God and offer sacrifices to him. But which mount would they choose? Would they which, which one would they, would they choose to worship from? The one that represented perfect obedience, Mount Gerizim, or on the one that represented an acknowledgement of falling short of perfect obedience? That's on Mount Abal. Well, the answer had already been given to them back in chapter 27. In the previous chapter, God had instructed them to build it on Mount Abal which would symbolize the fact that they had all fallen short of perfect obedience to all of God's laws. And thus their blessings could not come by perfect obedience to God's law. Rather, any blessing that they received would have to come by grace. And by grace alone. Sinners could not receive blessings, including the blessing of salvation, on Mount Gerizim because they had already failed to uphold all of God's commandments perfectly. Therefore, in his great mercy, God instructed that the altar of worship be built on the mount which represented a failure to uphold all the commandments which represented disobedience, that their sin may be acknowledged, that their sin may be turned from, that their sin may be repented of and forgiven, and that they may receive the blessings of God, not by merit, not because they deserved it, not because they had earned it, but by grace 
and by grace alone. And friends, it's the same thing in our day and age, even today. There are two kinds of worship. There's the worship that says, what I do is good enough to please God. And then there's the worship that's, that takes the attitude that we haven't done anything on our own that pleases God. And so what we have to offer him is only filthy rags. So there are two choices. A person can receive the blessings of God through perfect obedience, or they can receive them by grace. The problem is that all have sinned. All have already transgressed God's perfect and holy law. Every religion in the world outside of Christianity is essentially an attempt to do exactly what the Samaritans were doing. Worshiping God based on merit instead of humbly acknowledging that they had fallen short. Scorning the idea that their worship must be done in accordance with what God had specifically instructed. The Samaritans were doing what so many people in our day and age, even today, are doing. They're trying to worship or they're trying to appease their idea of God in a way that seems good to them, in a way that seems acceptable to them as fallible human beings. So what distinguishes between true religion and false religion? It's this. It's the acknowledgement that man, because of sin, is incapable of doing anything that pleases God. And so corrupt was the religion of the Samaritans that they not only blended their religion with with vain pagan religiosity, and not only did they ignore the majority of God's word, but even the part of God's word that they accepted, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they changed. They rewrote for the sake of their own convenience so that they could promote their religion. What they did is they rewrote the scriptures to say that God had designated not Mount Ebal as the place of worship, but Mount Gerizim as the place where the altar should be built and where God must be worshipped. How convenient. How tragic. The truth is, friends, that without instruction from God, without direct Uh, special revelation from God, specific revelation from God, without knowledge from God, a man's ideas of God, a man's ideas of salvation and sin and worship are all unavoidably bound to be mistaken because human philosophy and God's wisdom are two very different things. Operating from merit and operating from grace are at opposite poles. And man, humans, uh, fallen man's idea of worship is that it must be based on merit. Again, an essential aspect of evangelism is either informing or reminding a person that whatever they think they've done to please God, whatever they think they've done to worship God apart from faith in Christ has not pleased him at all. And God has rejected their worship. But what grace that Jesus would anticipate the argument that she was about to make, that he would understand it so clearly. 
Before she could say something like, so see, our religion is just as good as yours. Our religion is just as valid as yours. Sure, our religions are different, but we worship the same God. Jesus interrupts her. So look what he says in verses 21 and 22 with me. John writes, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Friends, it is not unloving to tell people the truth. Our culture would have us believe that it is that it's unloving to tell somebody something that makes them feel uncomfortable, to tell them something that challenges their beliefs, their epistemology, their, their way of thinking. But in fact, it's, it's not unloving. It, it's unloving to not tell people the truth. And so Jesus tells her the truth. He loves her too much to let her just continue to believe that any and every religion that has its origins in man's philosophy, in man's thinking, in man's way of, of operating, that it's even slightly pleasing or acceptable to God. He loves her too much to let her continue believing that. So Jesus is making a very, very strong statement here. He's saying that human religion is not and never has been the same as the religion that God himself has created and informed. Man's ways of operating, man's ways of thinking, it always leads to the conclusion that salvation is by merit, that salvation must be earned, that we must do this, or we must do that. We must do something in some way to receive God's blessings. But the truth of the matter is that salvation is, always has been, and always will be by God's grace alone, alone. True and acceptable worship, true and acceptable religion must be informed. It must be shaped by what God says. And if you think about it for a second, knowing that what we do must be shaped by what God himself has said really underscores the vital danger, the incredible danger of remaining ignorant of God's word, doesn't it? The gospel is foolishness to man, but it is the wisdom of God. That is to say that a natural man will always think that the gospel sounds like a really stupid idea, a really offensive idea, and that he doesn't need it, that he's got a better way, another way, a better way. The gospel, though, is always opposed to merit because the gospel affirms that salvation is by grace alone. And that word alone, make no mistake about it, that word alone is so important. That word alone makes all the difference. See, some people will say, you know, I get it. I'm, I'm a human. I mess up. I, I need grace. I need forgiveness. But I'm, I'm really not that bad. So sure, I need God's grace uh, for the bad parts. But for the good parts, I, I'm good. Now, the Bible... Friends, the Bible is the only word of God, and it is the only voice among every philosophy and every religion and every way of thinking in the world which affirms that grace is our only hope and that there is no merit. There's no other philosophy, no other way of thinking, no other religion that affirms that we have nothing to offer, that everything that we do is corrupted by sin, because of our sinful nature. 
that man is not good, but that man is spiritually dead and incapable of pleasing God, incapable of worshiping God, incapable of even responding to God apart from God's grace. But this is why Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. Now, that can be taken a lot of ways, and I think that's the way Jesus meant for it to be taken in a a number of ways. There are a, a lot of implications of that statement, but we have to understand that this is the way that God had specifically designed and ordained it to be, that salvation would be from the Jews. See, the Jews were preserved and given by God as a light to the nations. What else is likened to a light? God's word is. God's word is. As such, he also gave his special revelation, the scriptures, to the Jews. Every book in the Old Testament was written by a Jewish author. This is what made the religion of the Samaritans so mistaken. They not only rejected all of God's prophets that he sent through Israel, but they rewrote the one part they kept when they felt that it was necessary and convenient for them to do so. If one wanted salvation then, or today. They couldn't find it by worshiping idols. If one wanted salvation, they couldn't find it by looking to their king or to their political leaders. If one wanted salvation, they couldn't find it by listening to the wisest philosophers or the best orators. If one wanted salvation, they could not find it by working for it, by deserving it, by earning it. No, if a person wanted salvation then, they had to turn to the Jews through whom God had given his holy, inerrant, inspired, God-breathed word, which in fact instructed that prior to Jesus, if somebody wanted salvation, they had to come to the Jews and actually become one with the Jews in order to receive salvation. But more important than, than even that is the fact that one of the implications of this statement Uh, that salvation is from the Jews, is that God has sent his one and only begotten son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Jews. God promised back in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a redeemer. The seed of that promise can be traced through the ages, throughout the Old Testament, through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac, Jacob, through Judah, through David. The promise of the redeemer came through the Jews. Salvation for the world came through the Jews, not because they were a great and mighty people, that's not why God chose them, but because they weren't. That's why God chose them. They were small, and thus God alone would receive the glory for what he did through them. He told them in Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 7 and 8, he said, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, the Samaritan woman and her religion and her ideas and their ideas were all greatly mistaken. Her worship, like the worship of her people, her ancestors, was neither pleasing nor acceptable to God. And she had no way to know that without the Jews, without the Scriptures. 
because she never would have gone to Jerusalem to seek this treasure of wisdom, to seek this, this treasure of, of, of divine revelation. This was a woman who would remain ignorant of all the things of God, and she would perish in her ignorance. But this is why the text tells us, all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, that Jesus not only went through Samaria, but that he had to go through Samaria. But while Jesus declared the truth that was found in the Old Testament scriptures, he also predicted that a time was coming when that would change. That a time was coming when somebody wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem to worship the Father. They wouldn't worship on Mount Gerizim necessarily either. No, the, the change was coming. The change was coming. The temple in Jerusalem had been the one place, the only place through which worship to God was to be offered. And only a priest in the line of Aaron uh, was able to offer the sacrifices, which is another reason uh, that the, the Samaritans couldn't worship God because the sacrifices had to be done by a priest in the line of Aaron. They weren't Samaritans. But the purpose of the temple was to be a foreshadow. It was only to be a foreshadow. It served a purpose for a time. It would foreshadow the very one who stood before this adulterous Samaritan woman on this hot day. When Jesus said that the hour is coming when worship will not depend on location or, or proximity, he was referring to his own death on a cross. Whenever he says uh, there's an hour coming, whenever he refers to an hour that was to come, he's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about his, his death. He, he meant that his death would be the end of all the types and all the shadows found in the Old Testament, including the sacrifices of atonement and including the necessity of going to the temple in Jerusalem. Christ himself would be the once and for all atonement for sin. It was true that salvation was of the Jews. It was true that worship had to be offered at the temple in Jerusalem. But upon his death on the cross, the curtain of the temple, which had divided the holy place from the holy of holies, ripped in half, signifying that the time of the temple being the one place to worship God and to offer sacrifices had passed. Now, post-crucifixion, if a person wanted to worship God, they had to do so through the one that the temple had foreshadowed, through Christ the Lord. God didn't nullify his promises to Israel. He didn't cancel or void his covenant promises to Israel. Rather, they were all fulfilled in Jesus. The final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the only sacrifice that God was truly pleased by had been offered on Calvary by Jesus. His resurrection from the dead proves that his offering on our behalf was both pleasing and acceptable to God. That's why the resurrection is so vitally important. That's why it's among the first things. It's one of the first things, most important things of the whole Christian faith. It's the foundation for any assurance that we might have. It's proof that God accepted that sacrifice and was pleased by it. Now, let me summarize all this for you. Before Jesus, the only place to worship that was pleasing to God was at the temple in Jerusalem. After the crucifixion, the only way to worship God is through Christ. 
is through Christ. Before Jesus, if a person would not worship God at the one altar which God had provided for sinners, they would just be lost in their sins. And now, if a person will not worship God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they too are lost in their sins in the same way. Friends, worship that is acceptable to God, worship that is pleasing to God, must start with a humble acknowledgement of our wretchedness, of the fact that we have fallen short, of the fact that we have not perfectly upheld all of God's commandments, and also an acknowledgement of God's holiness and what He requires. These are things that the Bible reveals both clearly, authoritatively, and abundantly. And so let us be sure that our lives are aligned with what God's Word says, with what He has instructed, recognizing that we have fallen short and need grace, and thus we don't worship on Mount Gerizim. We worship on the the mount that God has designated for true worship, where one can acknowledge their sin and come to Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Apart from what God has revealed in His Word, we are ignorant And if we are ignorant, we are bound to fall into very deep and very serious error. So let us rejoice in the salvation that God has provided in His one and only Son, who bore the sins of all who would repent, who would turn away from every effort to receive salvation through merit, for all who would repent and simply believe in His one and only Son. Believe that his work, his sacrifice was sufficient for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. Let us rejoice in knowing that we have no merit of our own to stand on, but that the merit that we have, any righteousness that we have, is a righteousness that is alien to us. It comes from outside of us. It is the righteousness of Christ imputed, transferred to all who will believe knowing that our sins were dealt with. That that while His righteousness was imputed to us, our sin had to be imputed to Him. And so, the righteousness that we have, the righteousness which we have uh, to stand before God on, is not our own righteousness. It's God's righteousness imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. If you have not repented and believed in Jesus, you must understand that there's there's no other way for you to be saved. If you have not repented and believed in Jesus, you are taking the position of the Samaritans. You're doing the same thing. You're worshiping from the position that you have enough merit to worship God apart from Christ, apart from grace. You have to understand that if you have not repented and believed in Christ, there is no other way to be saved. You must understand that if you haven't put faith for salvation in Christ, there is nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do to offer pleasing and acceptable worship to God. There's nothing that you can do to have a good standing before God based on your own merit. But... The gospel is this, if you will acknowledge your sin, if you will recognize your need for salvation, you must know 
that God offers, freely offers his grace, the forgiveness of sin for all who will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what your sin has been. Doesn't matter how great your sin is. Doesn't matter how many sins it is. The blood of Christ was shed for every one of those and covers every one for all who will repent and believe in Jesus. Friends, if you have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have the same calling that the Jews once had. And that is to not only know and live by God's word, but to be a light to the nations. To be a light to the nations. And so, let our light shine brightly in our day. As the world around us, I mean, you've seen the headlines. You see the same things I see. As the world around us is growing darker, we have an opportunity to shine our light that previous generations in our nation, in our culture, didn't have. As salvation was once from the Jews, today's salvation is in Christ alone. And that good news must come from and be shared by those who have been saved by grace through Christ and our faithful witness to his gospel. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, thank you for your word. It is living and active, penetrating to the depths of our souls. And so we confess to you in the silence of our own hearts that we have no merit of our own. And thus, we cannot receive your blessings based on merit. We cannot receive your blessings because we've been obedient to all that you've commanded. We can only do so by acknowledging that we have fallen short and understanding that the one sacrifice has been made by Christ and that that sacrifice was Christ. Thank you for sending him to take our sin upon himself, to take the wrath that we deserved and to impute his own perfect, sinless righteousness to us so that we can stand not in our merit, but in the merit of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for such a fantastic blessing. Thank you for your word which reminds us that we have every heavenly blessings now in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us courage to go forth with this message of reconciliation. Help us deal with people who feel like they have the merit to stand before you and to deal with them graciously and wisely that you would use our faithful witness as feeble and as frail as it may be to plant seeds that would grow fruit in accordance with the work of the Holy Spirit. Give us courage. Give us conviction. Give us opportunities, Lord. That's what we pray for, that Christ would be glorified and that we would be a light to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.